Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, hey there, friend. I was hoping you'd be by tonight. Tonight marks the occasion of our very first threefer. That's three tales of terror for the price of one. Free. Can't beat it. Yes, Chester, I promised you could come inside on special occasions. Just no flopping your tail around. And remember my zero fart tolerance policy. Got it? Good. Well, come on in, friend. We've got wood to chop. Come on, Chester. That's a good boy. Hmm. There we go. Real quick, let me just remind y'all of my new Patreon page. And if you've ever wanted to support me or what I do, or support the show, you can go there and become a patron. Do that and you'll have access to exclusive content. That includes narrations almost every week and access to the Drew and Jeff show. So what are you waiting for, friends? Come on and become a patron. At the very least, you'll help keep Chester fed, and I know he appreciates it. Okay, moving on. So tonight, we welcome a brand new friend to the show, Elford Alley. And I think he'll fit in just swimmingly. No, he ain't gonna go swimming with you, Chester. That's not what that means. In any case, smoke them if you got them, and drink those glasses to the bottom, y'all. Cause old Drew Blood has a tale to tell. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. You know, Drew Blood's Dark Tales is only one of the many shows on this network you could be listening to. We hope you'll subscribe to our entire lineup, including Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Fear from the Heartland, and Horror Hill. All available on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit simplyscarypodcast.com to become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you get our entire catalog ad-free and available to download or stream. A bargain. And now, back to the show. For our first story tonight, we joined the proprietor of a curiosity shop in Nobility, Texas, who may have gotten in a little over his head. So now... From author Alfred Alley, I give you Junk Man.
Colt inherited the place. His uncle was a tall man, pushing six foot three. Colt was barely pushing five foot. He kept a stepladder behind the counter so he could look customers in the eye. His business was housed in a single wide trailer house right off the highway. Those two black top lanes represented the only commerce entering and exiting Nobility, Texas. He was there to greet them. Behind the trailer stood an old red barn, housing most of his stock. He took precautions. Coke kept a small electric fence around the barn. Motion sensor lights surrounded the trailer. Strapped to his thigh was his final security measure, a Smith & Wesson 9mm. He took over his uncle's business three years prior. Little changed. He peddled the rare and illegal. He only drew lines at anything involving kids, something his uncle chose not to do. Colt burned those things, all of them. Of course, he still had to turn away the regulars, the town fathers, the church deacons, and the teachers at the school. If he had kids, he'd never let them leave the house. But Colt's junk did a nice business. Twice a week, the local cops pulled up, told him his registration was out of date, and took the envelope from the visor of his car. Colt continued to operate with impunity. The department recently picked up a very nice squad car and various crowd dispersal equipment. Maybe a little much for such a small town, but who was Colt to judge a customer's purchase? He was the junk man. The door dinged, but he heard the customer's motorcycle before the man ever turned down the drive. Hello there, Deeks, Colt said, leaning forward on the counter. Colt's face was perfectly round, framed with scraggly facial hair and a whisper comb over dressing his forehead. Colt, Deeks coughed. In the 1980s, he was built like a linebacker. Now Deeks was a dark-bearded Santa Claus, adorned in leather and patches with insignia Colt knew very well. Deeks was a loud man, one who called the room to his attention with a bark or threat. Uh, you okay, Deeks? Colt asked. I got something to show you. What is it? It's coming. Well, Colt said, aren't we mysterious? Just no questions. Deeks? Yeah, yeah. A few minutes passed before a truck, its engine burping and gargling, pulled up to the building. Deeks motioned his head and Colt followed. Outside, the thin man Colt knew only as Pops opened the driver's door and jumped out. He walked to the truck bed and threw back a tarp. The fuck is this? Colt asked. I found it, Deke said. Hey, you want me to dispose of it? Colt asked. That was my uncle's game. I run a classy joint. Guns and drugs, nothing more. No, look, Deke said. It's old. It's very old. Under the green tarp was a body, human, the skin dried and gray, teeth jutting out from the lipless mouth like something Colt once saw in an Egyptian exhibit. Colt took his phone and shined the light over the body. He noticed the changes in skin tone. He saw the stitches, wide and threaded with a thick length of wire. Look it, Deke said. It's made of people, lots of people. But it's old. Where did you find it? 
Deeks looked at Pipes. Never mind. What is this? Colt shined a light on the right shoulder. A chunk was gone. The skin singed. <laughs> you shot this thing, Colt said, laughing. It was dark, Deeks said. He looked at the body, never meeting Colt's eyes. And did it jump at you? Colt said. It was dark. Deeks fumed, his lips pursed together, his shoulders raised. Uh, I thought... I saw it move. It was dark. Right, Colt said. How much you want for it? They argued the price. Deeks wanted five grand. Colt knew damn well he could get more. But he also knew damn well that Deeks didn't know this. Two hundred. Try to get a better price. Name one place in this fucking state where you can move this. Unless you want to talk to the cartels. Fuck that, Deeks said. Fuck that, Colt agreed. Two hundred. You know what? Two fifty. I like you, Deeks. Fuck off. Pipes, wrap it up. The tarp crinkled as Pipes covered the body. Don't break anything, Colt said. He knew a man who worked for a very superstitious employer. He'd pay handsomely. Take it around back. Don't drag that thing to my front door. Colt shoved a roll of twenties in Deke's hand. He and Pipes left. The body lay wrapped in the tarp on the floor of a spare room. The trailer had a bedroom that acted as storage for the more sensitive items in Colt's collection. He called the body Stitch Man. Stitch Man was going to make ten grand easy. He went to the counter. The store was quiet. A slight breeze made the metal sign hanging from the front porch creak. He almost dozed when he heard the crinkling. He immediately thought of the rats, but then he remembered his recent acquisition. The tarp. He climbed down from the stool and went to the back room. He opened the door to see the body uncovered. The tarp was pulled to the side. The body lay in the same state as he glimpsed in the back of the truck, except the arm. Stitchman's left arm gripped the wound in the right shoulder, where Deke shot it. Colt started to reach down and grab the tarp, but stopped. He slowly pulled his arm to the side. He moved to the other side of the body. He kicked at the tarp until it covered the body. He refused to reach over it. Colt decided to sleep. The counter the customer saw when they entered was a portion of the living room. Behind the curtain to the right was a small bed. He locked the door to the back room. He crawled into the bed and strained his ears, desperate to ensure every sound, from the window unit to the swinging sign outside, wasn't the crinkling of a plastic tarp or the movements of a desiccated corpse. Colt slept in. Colt never slept in. He never bothered to undress before going to sleep, so he didn't have to dress when he awoke. His record was a month without changing clothes. He felt a twinge of sadness knowing none of his clientele noticed. He went to the counter. Looking at the window in the front door, he saw blue clouds in the distance. The trees shook and bent in the wind. 
Colt decided to turn off the window unit and let the coming storm cool him. Let the peals of thunder replace the whirring machine. The door to the back room was open. He told himself he was robbed. Deeks came back for the body. He took the 9mm he stashed under the counter before he went to sleep and gripped it hard to try and steady his hand. He moved down the hall, taking long steps and easing his feet onto the ground. The tarp was spread across the floor. Stitchman was gone. Colt backed out of the room. To his left, the door to the bathroom was partially open. He pushed a barrel against the door and opened it. Dakes? Pipes? Stitchman stood in the bathroom, his back to Colt, strapped in stitches and wounds. Oh, fuck me! Colt squeaked. The body started to turn, almost facing Colt before it collapsed to the ground. One of the legs disconnected. The body was gripping the right shoulder with the left hand. The face still frozen in a dried moan, the skin like parchment. Colt checked the door and windows, locked from the inside. No one had been inside. No lights woke him. The body moved. Colt called his buyer. I got something here, but you've got to be quick. How much did you say? Ten grand. Take a look. You won't find anything else like it. Outside the cartels, he said. It's old. Very old. Mummified. His buyer again asked where it was found. Again, Colt reminded the man he had no idea. The man who sold it was eager to offload and not eager to answer questions. Ten grand is a little steep. The buyer stood up, his knees popping. He brushed the dirt from his knees. The body was exposed. The tarp pulled back. It still gripped the shoulder. Colt had no desire to touch it long enough to move it. The buyer's name was Estes Miller. He tended to purchase the more obscure items, passing them on to another party. He dressed like a lawyer, talked like one too. Colt never cared for Estes. Ten grand. A little steep. He put his hands in his pocket. Colt reminded him again about the rareness of the body. No, Stitchman, as you say, is very rare. Exquisite. How many people make him? What's inside him? So many questions I know my boss will be very eager to answer. Colt liked to imagine he was prepared for every eventuality. He was not prepared for Estes to pull a gun before he could reach the gun he strapped to his leg. I'm going to take it. Estes was unemployed. His boss, disappointed in the low quality of the items he brought in on his employer's dime, dismissed him. He was broke. Stitchman was a chance to gain it all back. Look, Colt said. How about this? Take some pictures. Show your boss. Let him hire you back and send you here with the money. No, back up against the wall. I'm going to take this. Colt asked the man how he planned on hauling the body out by himself, the man being as slight in frame and weight as Colt. He reminded Estes that stealing money from him stole from other people, such as the local police. 
They won't care for it. You're going to help me. Get over here. Colt refused. Estes ran to him, his foot catching the tarp. He fell onto Colt, who then grabbed Estes' gun and wrestled it from his grip. He fired once. Estes howled and gripped his stomach. Colt fired three more times. Estes was dead. Colt dropped the gun and sat on the floor. He looked at Estes, staring at the dead man until he heard the tarp crinkle. The other dead man was sitting up. There were no eyes for focus, but Colt assumed the body was looking at him. It turned at the waist, the rest of the body stiff. With a crack, the left hand loosened itself from the right shoulder. The rest of the body froze in place. The arm reached out in halting, jerking motions, resting on Estes' shoulder. I see, Colt said. The head turned, looking down at the body. I can't, though. I can't, Colt said. The head moved again, eyeless sockets and jutting teeth turning in his direction. Colt worked quickly. He had disposed of bodies before. He had dismembered and dissolved them. His uncle left the boy well-versed in these arts. He saved Estes' arm and shoulder. Colt cut the wire, pulling the damaged arm and shoulder from Stitchman and sealing it in the drum with the rest of Estes Miller. He used a knife to wear holes in the skin, thread the needle to reattach the new arm. The body did not move. Colt hummed to himself to distract himself from the sensations, from the clammy coldness of Estes' arm and the dried, rough flesh of Stitchman. He stayed closed the entire day. He made Stitchman whole again. They never seemed to stop, a stream of people entering his trailer. Others had purchases that required visits to the barn. Colt called in favors, others to help pick up the slack. He had customers, not regulars, new customers. They wanted antiques and old clothes. Some wanted guns and others drugs. The flow never stopped. Colt quit opening the register. There was no more room for cash. People he had never seen, old ladies and young mothers who normally wouldn't dare darken his doorway, coming in to see what he had. He left Stitchman on the tarp, uncovered in the back room. After he closed for the night, he walked back and pushed open the door. He felt no ball in the pit of his stomach, no sweating or shaking hands. He looked at the desiccated mummy on the floor. You sure know how to show some gratitude. The next day, he continued to see smiling faces and handed over a variety of items, both illegal and legal. He was surprised at how much an old Happy Days lunchbox netted him. Why was he wasting time with drugs and unregistered firearms? 
he saw the local cruiser pull down the driveway. He didn't recognize the officer who stepped out and was surprised to see him walk past the car without checking the visor for an envelope. He pushed open the door and removed the tan cowboy hat from his head. He introduced himself as the new head of the police department. There had recently been an election. What can I do for you? Well, sir, for starters, you could leave. Colt waited for the laughter, but the man kept his face stern. The sun left his skin bronze, his hair white. Even though he was decades older than Colt, he easily intimidated the short storekeeper. You don't support local business? The man laughed, turning around to change Colt's sign from open to close. <laughs> I know what you are and what you do. You're cancer in this town. This is a friendly warning, more than you deserve. I want you out. You got 24 hours. Don't take advantage of my kindness. Then I'm coming down on you, hard. We've cleaned house. You got no one in this uniform on your side. The man cleared his throat, <clears throat> placed the tan cowboy hat back on his head, and nodded at Colt. He left without changing the sign. Fuck. Colt started to pack. He had enough cash squirreled away that relocating wasn't an issue. Maybe he would go back to college. He did a semester at a local community college. Maybe his credits would still transfer. Colt panicked until he returned to the back room. There he saw Stitchman grasping his broken leg. A meth addict sleeping outside the trailer provided the new leg. The new chief then met his demise in a freak hunting accident. As the arms and legs of the corpse were rejuvenated, so was Colt's business. What wasn't liquefied in drums was left in the sun at the back of the property for the fire ants. The cleaned bones were then deposited into Desert Creek ten miles down the road. The water carried them to Lake Levon, where Silt buried them. He placed others in weighted sacks and dropped them in exposed wells throughout the county. He rebuilt the old pharmacy downtown. Now his business flirted with legitimacy. He hired staff. His trusted employees work in the trailer and barn on Highway 69, while the others work the registers and stockroom. Colt found himself disconnected from his previous means of income. He allowed other organizations to take over providing the illegal treats and toys the locals so desired. His place on the highway was now an antique store, nothing more. He also rebuilt his friend, his lucky totem, one piece at a time. Homeless, runaways, addicts, and even the occasional rival were soon encased in barrels, while limbs and organs were attached and entombed within the corpse, which now had an entire floor to itself above the pharmacy. The figure never talked, never moved unless it needed to communicate its next need to Colt. My God, I've made it, Colt said after closing the pharmacy for the day and sending his part-time employees home with their checks. No more visits from police. They dealt directly with his competitors now. No more scrounging or exposure to the worst mankind had to offer to find things worth selling. 
no more. Colt went above the store that evening on a whim. He almost never visited the body. After all, what else could Stitch Man need? The body was not on the mat. He closed the door, the click echoing across the empty space. Stitch Man stood in the corner. To Colt's amusement, the body started to shuffle towards him, moving in small, halting motions. Well, aren't we spry? Colt said. The body came close to Colt, who backed up slightly. Despite being made from parts of the deceased, his new limbs never rotted or swelled. There was no decay, even the mustiness subsided. The body reached out a hand, the one from Estes Miller, and placed it on Colt's face. <laughs> what are you doing? Colt laughed. With its other hand, it touched its own dry, mummified face. The hand on Colt's face constricted, grasping his flesh, one finger digging into his eye socket. Colt screamed and tried to push the hand away, only for Stitch Man to fall onto him. When the deed was done, Stitch Man moved downstairs, finding the tool set in the janitor's closet. He stitched his new head in place, pulling the eyes out and setting them on a table to allow him to watch and stitch with better accuracy. Now whole, he laid down on the mat, which had replaced the old green tarp. He would soon need more, but more would come. And that was Junkman by author Alfred Alley, a good reminder to adhere to your local business ordinances. Speaking of which, for our second story tonight, we join an entrepreneur trying to navigate business ethics post-apocalypse. Again, from author Alfred Alley, I give you Nature of the Business. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
The sun finally set. They don't arrive until then. I waited in the parking lot, another drag before I crushed a cigarette under my heel. The building used to be a skating rink. We've since repurposed it. We boarded up the windows, let grass overtake the parking lot, and allow any wind-blown trash to remain where it lands. We have an image to uphold, and that image is plausible deniability that we're even open. When first entering the building, they find themselves in our waiting room. One of my fellow employees always greets them. They ask the usual questions. What was their name, height and weight, skin color and eye color? Though to be honest, those details never matter. They see the person in their head clear enough. After the questionnaire, they enter the labyrinth through a pair of double doors. We cleared out everything related to the rink. It took months, but we built a series of hallways and stairs. We pumped loud music to cover the sounds. We know the immersion aspect is key, so we don't want a neighbor's experience ruining it, you know? I finally saw the truck pull up, primer gray, squeaking brakes, just as he said. The man jumped out. He pulled on a coat and slung a backpack over one shoulder. He walked with his head down and moved straight to me. John? I asked. I held out my hand. He grabbed it but barely gripped. He seemed to chill in the 80 degree dusk. Yeah, John, he said. He looked around before muttering, fuck, at the side of a police cruiser. The car pulled up alongside us. The passenger side window went down. Evening, the officer inside drawled. He put the car in park. Lovely night. Yes, sir, I said. I patted John on the back. Just having a little conversation with my friend. I know, bud, I know, he chuckled. I think you might have ended up with my mail by mistake. I did, actually. You just head over to the mailbox at the end of the drive. It's in there for you. I smiled and waved. He did the same and pulled away. What was that? John asked. Nature of the business, I said. Now, you ready to get started? Yeah. You know, I, I never got my last check deposited. That's fine. You paid when you signed the non-disclosure forms. No, I mean... The man fumed. They stiffed me. After everything, they stiffed me. Then you are ready. And John, you're going to enjoy this. Did you bring your own? No, I thought you had stuff, John asked. Of course. Some people like to bring their own. I just want to know what you got before you go inside. We don't need surprises in a high-risk venture like ours. John nodded. If I had to guess, I'd say every other customer was John. Same name, even. But we don't ask for ID, after all. They all definitely have the same initial hesitation. Until everything starts, and then they let the fear take a back seat while anger drives. And boy, boy does it ever drive. We've been in the business almost since the first wave ended. Despite all the movies and media about what an uprising of the dead would mean, I'd say the entire thing lasted about six months.
In that time, people play-acting movies and video games, stocking up on ammo and guns, killed more people than the dead ever did. I volunteered on a cleanup crew. That's where the idea hit. I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I kicked myself every time I saw someone make a mint on an obvious and brilliantly simple business idea. We worked in crews of six, canvassing our community for any remaining ones and putting a bullet in their heads. The bodies were then dragged to pits, burned, and the remains shoveled into barrels, hauled away by the National Guard. I made more doing that than I ever did putting roofs on houses. We found one of them crawling. While they were immune to death as we knew it, they weren't immune to insects and animals. A hungry coyote could cripple them. A swarm of flies laying eggs and they'd be in pieces in a matter of days. Something took this one's legs. It moaned and continued to pull itself forward with its outstretched arms, never paying us any attention, leaving a trail from where friction tore away at the chest and stomach. While in the first weeks they seemed ravenous, eating the living until their stomachs quite literally burst. But that seemed to pass. Only the fresh ones hungered. But you know, you couldn't take the risk, so they all got a bullet, no matter how bloated or skeletal they may have been. Anyway, the crawler, a man, looked to be in his mid-thirties, about my age. One of them women on my crew stopped when she saw it. Her name was Ashley. She had been with us since the beginning. She never got squeamish, but she took time to wrap layers of duct tape where her boots and pant legs met and around her gloves and sleeves. Over-precautious, maybe, but never squeamish. She stopped and said, David. I assumed this was family and moved in to finish the job myself. She put an arm up and held me back. This fucker is mine. Turns out she dated him years before. A real abusive piece of shit. When she was done, he was a pile of black and green. One of the hands twitched. Her clothes were splattered with gore. She looked at me and smiled. I'd pay a million bucks for the chance to do that again. Inside the entryway, people always stopped. The waiting area was bright, like a doctor's office. A very professional appearance. Denise insisted on it. Of course, the quote wall clashed with the decor. A large corkboard was hung to the left of the entrance. Dozens of quotes were pinned with tacks, such as, You are goddamn right it's your fault. Or, I saw what you did. Or, You ain't laughing now. What are those? John asked. Hello, John. Denise greeted John and asked him to sit on one of the nice ergonomic chairs we picked up. She addressed him by name asked the usual questions, and checked off the paperwork on her clipboard. John answered, trying to steady his voice. Fred Kessler. He's about five foot eight. I'd say 250. I think brown eyes. They should be brown. He was always so full of shit. <laughs> Denise laughed. She was very good at reading people. She dressed in a gray business suit, custom-made, a remnant of her past as a securities analyst. She looked impeccable, 
while most of us appeared to have started our day by crawling out of a cardboard box. In fact, I'll be honest, the fact that we continue to pull in obscene amounts of cash while remaining off the law's radar is purely her. <laughs> Denise continued to chuckle at his nervous jokes. This guy needed a win, and a laugh at some bad jokes was a good start. She nodded to me, and then told John to wait right there. This guy's gonna lose it in there, she whispered. We moved to the edge of the room. He seems alright, I said. Look at him. He's shaking. I say we get another. No, I promised him something special. You won't get any repeats, she said. They're getting hard to come by. You know that. It's a risk I'll take, I said. I don't know why I was willing to go out on a limb for this guy. Maybe I saw myself in him. Maybe he just seemed so damn sad. Maybe that's what I saw. Denise had reason to be cautious. We had a woman in a month earlier. The man we found didn't even resemble what she asked for. She was very specific. And I assumed we'd get threats of going public if we didn't offer a refund. But she went after him. She didn't use the weapon she brought. She used her hands. I've seen these things eat during the uprising, but even they didn't tear at people the way she did. She had been from Irwin. I didn't know. You see, in Irwin and small towns across the country, neo-Nazis, or whatever they want to be called now, were armed to the teeth for their little Fourth Reich or whatever. They ended up instead leading the charge against the dead. As a show of gratitude, the white members of these communities turned a blind eye to the atrocities. The lynching, burnings, the murders and torture swelled and went unpunished. Survivors were urged to let it go. After all the dead walked, who could blame anyone for how they acted? I witnessed the aftermath of a lynching. It was done in a town square. We went for coffee before our crew hit the streets and saw the man swinging from a tree. I also heard a mom try to console her terrified son. Don't worry, he was already dead, sweetie. She lost her family to the defenders of Irwin and the bald white man we found was good enough. I've made quite a lot of money from these survivors. Where else can they earn retribution without bringing hell on their heads? I always give discounts. After all, if I had been there, I probably would have found myself at the end of a rope too. He will take you back there. You know the rules? She asked. I brought my change of clothes, John said. He patted the backpack at his feet. I know when you say stop, I stop. I know I signed a non-disclosure form and you'll sue the shit out of me if I talk. We want you to have a good time, but if you blab and shut us down and I have to go back on food stamps, we will not have a good time. I understood Denise's fear. Jobs were hard to come by, but the government assumed that was just because we weren't trying. God help you if work dried up. Try to get a little assistance? You could only get the approved foods provided by a third-party corporation and usually in the process of rotten. Or you could go into the hole with the IRS and try to keep the roof over your head for a few months. No one wanted to go to prison. Not now, especially. I opened the door. The heat rushed out. No matter how we tried, the room stayed hot. 
This made preserving our product quite difficult. We were barely keeping our heads above water with the freezer truck. With 90 degree December days, and we don't even like talking about August, meat preservation is a difficult process. I put a hand on John's shoulder, guiding him through the maze of thin walls. If you bumped into them, they would wobble. We came to room 243. I knocked on the door. A cheery voice from within greeted us. I opened the door and sent John inside. Give me your backpack. When you're done, we'll send you to the showers. That's him! John cried. No one knew how it happened. There hadn't been an infected person in a very long time. But Fred Kessler, owner and CEO of Kessler's Manufacturing, became infected. We were alerted by the police and scooped them up. They'll get their cut, of course. Mr. Kessler recently laid off nearly every employee in our town, moving most operations to India. Doing so would make the shareholders very happy. He did offer employees a chance to stay and train their replacements, most of which would end up being machines. No one knew we had him, but we assumed, despite our legally binding non-disclosures, we would be seeing quite a few Kessler employees in the coming weeks, as long as we could keep Mr. Kessler in standing order. You requested a baseball bat, sir? A team member handed an aluminum bat to John. Chuck was young, but damn cheerful. Like Denise, he understood people. John held his palms out and let the bat rest on them. Then he gripped the handle like it was Excalibur. You said I had a bright future. You congratulated me on my kid. And the whole time, the whole fucking time you knew. John screamed and launched himself at Kessler. As in life, he remained a short and obese man. Now he ambled and shuffled, his milky eyes barely focused. When he finally caught a whiff of a person, he would moan and move toward them, arms out and an expectant mouth gaping. He never had a chance to catch a whiff of John before the bat pinged off his head. The muffled slams as the bat hammered his back and sides. Kessler fell to the ground rolling slowly side to side like an overturned turtle. How much to finish him? John asked. You don't have that much money, I said. I usually didn't stay, but like I said, I felt a connection here. Give me a number. Give me a fucking number, John said. His voice cracked. Snot and tears ran down his face. He's worth a lot to me. I'll give you anything. Chuck, can you take John's backpack to the shower? Chuck nodded. He grabbed the bag and shut the door behind him. The entire wall around the door wobbled for a moment. I'll tell you what, I said. You got a kid? A little girl, John said. He sniffed and rubbed his nose with his sleeve, never taking his hand off the bat. I did too, I said. The uprising. The dead walking the earth barely lasted six months. But in that time, some of us lost the world. Listen, John, I said. You crush this motherfucker. Then you take a shower and go home to your daughter. 
and don't you, not for one fucking second, forget that you have the whole world. Yeah. Yes, sir, John said. Go for it, and I'll be outside. John screamed. And brought the bat down on the overturned CEO. I whistled and shut the door behind me. Sometimes you just gotta put people first. Nature of the business, you know. I think I'll add, you said I had a bright future to the cork board. And that was Nature of the Business by Alfred Alley. A good reminder that the free market always finds a way. And there are other abiding truths you can't hide from, no matter where or how far you run. To demonstrate, our final story from Alfred Alley tonight is They Wait Underground. Damon brushed his teeth. The timer said he needed another 30 seconds, but he spat out the toothpaste and jumped off the stool sitting in front of the bathroom sink. He negotiated four bedtime stories from his parents, and when they left the room, he pulled the blanket over his head and pretended he was piloting the spacecraft. Once the heat became thick, he pulled down the blanket and breathed in the rush of cool air. He closed his eyes. Damon slept. Four hours later, he swore a meteor hit the house. He would repeat this story again and again to the first responders, to the doctors, to children in the classrooms and foster homes to come. Everything shook. There was a roar. He blinked in the dark and sat up. Light poured into the room as his bedroom door was thrown open. His mother burst into the room and gathered him up and ran through the house, gripping his body tight against her. It's okay, Damon. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Damon screamed. His mother yanked open the door and he spilled out onto the concrete steps. He jumped up and called to his mother. Damon was alone. No mother stood there. No house either. The cement steps with the decorative rock sunk in a flowing pattern that once led to the front door, cracked and crumbled. A massive hole remained where his home once stood. He thought the hole before him was a crater left behind from a meteor, like he saw in his books about dinosaurs. But there was no meteor, just a sinkhole. Everything for Damon had changed in seconds, just as it had for the dinosaurs in his books, leaving only a crater behind. He stepped forward three paces and glanced down. About twenty feet into the hole he could see Earth and nothing more. He called out softly. He found his voice and screamed. He screamed for his mother and father. Only silence from the chasm. He continued to scream, sprinting around the front yard. The quakes from the house sinking into the ground brought out the neighbors. 
They surrounded him and one kept Damon from climbing into the hole to save his parents. He wasn't sure who held him until the fire department and the police finally arrived. He eventually found himself wrapped in a blanket trying to explain how a meteor hit his house. He asked when they would pull his parents from the crater. The fire department spent four days attempting to excavate the hole and recover his family. They made it into the house on the fourth day. Damon later read in news articles that the ground shifted again and threatened to collapse further. They abandoned the search. Soil scientists and geologists struggled to determine how the sinkhole developed in the first place. The homes on either side of the sinkhole were evacuated. Damon would later learn it was a cover collapse sinkhole, which happens quickly due to water dissolving soil into an underground cavern or mine. But the soil was dry. No caverns were detected. No mines found in the area. No clue why or how this happened. He stayed with an elderly couple, family friends who lived a few blocks over. On the fifth night, he laid down on the pull-out couch that Henderson's made up for him and closed his eyes. He waited until everyone in the house slept. At 10 o'clock, Damon slipped into the night. He searched for landmarks and navigated his way through the neighborhood by spotting certain trees, that one colorful mailbox. These were markers tied to memories, memories that made his chest heavy, memories of his mother and father. He ran barefoot, his feet slapping the pavement and sidewalks. By the time he arrived at his street, he felt like he had been running on sandpaper. The bottoms of his feet burned. His sides ached. Tape and barricades surrounded the house. He followed the driveway, which looked much the same as it did before the collapse, but was now covered in thick, muddy footprints and dirt. Deep, wide tracks from excavators and backholes crisscrossed his front yard. Damon thought about how mad his father would be about the yard, but then he remembered. The hole seemed bigger than he remembered, gaping and dark, a vast chasm. Damon stopped. He hesitated before finally forcing himself to take one step forward, then another. He looked into the pit. No one loitered nearby. Mom? Dad? He asked. He lowered himself to his knees and leaned forward, glancing down into the dark. He called out again. Damon waited. Did he really expect an answer? If not, why did the silence tear at him so? In that moment, he realized they were gone well and truly. He wept before standing, dusting off his knees, and starting to walk back to the Hendersons' home. He stopped to pull a pebble that embedded itself into his foot. Damon. His mother's voice. He turned and ran to the hole. He looked in the mall and called out to her. He called out several times until his voice became hoarse and raw. He remembered what the Hendersons told him. It had been days. 
They would repeat that every time he mentioned his parents being rescued. Days. Five days. Damon said. He started to walk back home. No voices stopped him. He heard it, he would tell himself. He heard that voice. Just the same, he told no one. The Hendersons couldn't take them in. They were too old and too tired. Damon tried to change their minds. He didn't want to lose another home. A foster home was found, one that promised to raise him under the caring and loving example of Jesus Christ. But there were times in his new home when left outside freezing in the night air, shivering against the cold water his foster parents soaked him in as punishment, when he hated his own mother and father. Loving him for those years only to leave him behind, only to make his suffering so much greater with the knowledge of everything he lost. He pulled at his underwear. They were too tight and left red marks on his waist, but he didn't want to take them off. He wanted at least that much dignity. This night, Damon, aged nine, shaking against the cold and laying in the cool grass, spoke to his parents. I'm still here, Damon said. After that night, he started to hear the scratches under his bedroom floor. The night they turned to Knox, he crawled from his bed. He knelt on the floor and put his ear against the stiff carpet. A loud rap underneath his ear. He jumped up. Damon. He felt air tickle the inside of his ear, like someone whispered from just behind him. He searched his room. He heard it again. Damon. The voice was muffled, coming from the yard just outside his window. He opened the latch and winced at the audible click. He waited, but no one screamed or came to his room. He excelled and then gently opened the window, just enough to slip outside. Damon dropped onto the grass and looked out onto the lawn catching the silhouette of a woman kneeling in the grass. He walked toward her. The silhouette straightened up. Mom? He walked forward, the grass cool and soft under his feet. He didn't feel the chilled air. His heart beat at his chest, and he bit his lower lip. It was her, his mother. He drew close and realized she wasn't kneeling. The earth was overturned around her body, her body smeared with mud in a viscous liquid, which oozed down her arms and streamed from her body. Her hand shot forward, striking at him like a snake. Damon fell back. She looked at him with pleading eyes, and when she opened her mouth, dirt tumbled out. Damon screamed and ran. Following his encounter, he started to act out in school. The attention he gained drew eyes to the bruises. Damon moved to a new home. The Oakmans were kind. They didn't yell when they found he was hiding food in his room and plastic bags in the rear of his closet. They indulged his need to keep doors and windows open, to identify any exits when he entered a new room or building. 
They knew Damon couldn't even count on the ground beneath his feet to remain stable. When the scratches and knocks returned, he told them. They sent him to a therapist. Together, his new family and his therapist tried to find an explanation. A strange manifestation of survivor's guilt. A specific expression of his PTSD. They also sought treatment for his sleep issues. Damon slept light when he slept at all. A doctor told him if they didn't address his issues now, sleep deprivation in adulthood would cause heart disease, high blood pressure. You could be dead before you're 50, kid, the doctor said. At least, Damon thought, I won't die in the dirt. The noises persisted. The voices followed. The figures rose from the ground in the backyard. They never walked to him or moved beyond the hole they formed in the soil. The holes would be filled in and covered the next morning, leaving little evidence of the ground had been disturbed at all. Damon noticed the pool and water in the backyard after every rain. He pointed out the electrical pole just outside the corner of the fence that started to lean. He noticed the knocks and creaks throughout the house, along with a deep groaning sound. The back porch pulled away from the house, and a spider web of cracks formed in the foundation. One night, the house shifted. A loud crunch reverberated throughout the home. He woke his parents screaming, and again he was carried outside. He stayed with his father's parents, his new grandparents. Again, no cause was discovered for the shift in or deep impressions forming in the backyard. When it was deemed safe to return, Damon did. So did the scratches and knocks, the light tapping on his window, the voices. Damon, come home. On his 15th birthday, a massive sinkhole formed behind the house overnight, and Damon ran away. The Oakmans would never see him again. Damon moved frequently. Retail meant low wages and little benefits, but also new jobs in every town. A chance to start over when his family came calling from beneath the ground. He stayed off social media and changed his name. He moved to the city, situated himself in upper floors of apartment buildings, or to a cot in a loft filled with struggling artists. Rental houses, basement rooms, or attic spaces. No matter where he went, the earth shifted beneath him, and they called to him. He would find his family's story online, in videos on YouTube, where a narrator would breathlessly describe the horror of the sinkhole collapse and Damon's own mysterious disappearance. He was a missing 411 case, an alien abduction. He knew too much, or the trauma made him snap and abandon society. Theories abounded. An old man now, Damon collected stories and folklore from around the world. Printed from forums, copied from musty pages of old books, written from hearsay and tall tales in the Appalachians and beyond. The names of the beings would change. The sins ascribed to the victims would vary, but some facets never changed. 
Tales revealing that sometimes something in the ground under us makes a claim on a person or a family. They are taken and they never return. Of course, there are the occasional stragglers, the witnesses, the ones that got away. But they only get away for a time. That much was clear from each and every iteration. Damon noticed they never aged. His mother and father looked as they did the night the ground swallowed them. Damon was now barely able to hold down a morning shift for 20 hours a week at Dollar General. He had a small place in a suburb outside McKinney, Texas. A neighbor and her daughter often looked in on him, picked up his pills for him, drove him to the store when he was too weak to shop after a shift. Margaret and Yelena spoke to him, told him about their day and asked about his. They had nothing important to talk about, but these conversations nourished Damon in a way he could never describe. They were like a new family, one he looked after as well, slipping Margaret cash for the water bill or to get the transmission looked at in their car or making sure Yelena had a little spending money. On the last night of Damon's life, Yelena popped by to drop off his prescription. She handed him the paper bag with the instructions stapled to it. He nodded and considered inviting her to stay for tea. He loved hearing her talk about nothing. Her nothing, her friends and their dramas, made him dream of what childhood could be. She smiled in a way he forgot kids could. He wanted her to stay, but behind her, through the window, he saw the silhouette of a woman rising from the ground. You'd better get back now, sweetie. You sure? I don't mind staying. Tomorrow night I'm busy. William? Damon asked. Did Mom tell you? <laughs> no, your smile did. But go on now. I can't keep my eyes open for another second. It's 8.30. She laughed. What a laugh. Damon smiled. A perfect goodbye. She left and he didn't lock the door. He took a bleach wipe and scrubbed away the symbols he painted on the basement door in the kitchen, usually hidden from view by a picture of birds. He walked into the backyard. He didn't see his mother, but he removed the totems from the trees and fences. He carried them inside and deposited them in his kitchen trash can. No need to keep them at bay. No more running now, old man. They live forever, apparently, with the ones they love. Living forever, but in total darkness, in the deep world beneath our feet. Maybe heaven and hell are two sides of the same coin, Damon often thought. Eternity was all about perception. Hell or paradise awaited. He couldn't run forever. Damon looked at the bag from the pharmacy on his coffee table, knowing he wouldn't need those damned pills anymore. He wouldn't need any pills anymore. He chuckled and walked upstairs, stopping midway to catch his breath. The diminished lung capacity, a symptom of a far graver illness, left him wheezing. He gripped the handrail hard and pushed himself forward. He stepped into his bedroom and laid down on top of the covers. 
He clasped his hands together and held them gently over his chest. Enough running now. They were his family. They were something else. They burrowed to him and nothing would slow them. Today or another, they would claim the one that got away. And that was They Wait Underground by author Alfred Alley. A good reminder that there's no escaping your fate, friends. The best you can do is postpone it. A little about the author. Alfred Alley is a horror author from Texas, giggity. He recently published the novel Apartment 239 and the sequel, High Strangeness. It's out this fall. The stories you just heard are from his horror collection, Ash and Bone, and We Will Find a Place for You, both available from v Books in Kindle, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook. You might recognize the audiobook narrator. I'll give you a hint. It's Jeff. And check out the show notes for a link to his stuff, friends. Let's show Elford some support. He'd really appreciate it, and so would I. Thanks sincerely, Elford. And thanks to Velox Books, publisher of High Octane Nightmare Fuel, available on Amazon and Audible.com. Check out their site at VLOXBooks.com for your next great read. And do old Drew Blood a favor, would you? Subscribe to his podcast wherever you do your listening and leave him a five-star review and a kind word, even if you're listening on YouTube. He needs soldiers on all fronts to win this battle, and he appreciates it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all the other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at chillintalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to their entire audio archive, all ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all the latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with them each and every week. Oh, and you can find Drew Blood on Facebook and Instagram, and sometimes Twitter. The Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast is accepting submissions, friend. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on the show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment, 10 bananas. Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, friend. At least till next week. So grab a drink for the road. And wherever you get to next, grab your next one there. Rinse and repeat. I'd like to say hello and thank you to a few more patrons. So, Claire Brown, Jinxed, and one of my OGs, Kimberly Sawicki. From the bottom of my heart, thank y'all for becoming patrons. means a lot to me. So, Ms. Claire Brown, Jinxed, and Kimberly Sawicki. 
May the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. Oh, real fucking nice, Chester. Just wait till the end, why don't you? Well, until next week, friends, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> uh, good night, y'all. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.